And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church. We are glad that you are here and we are coming to you live. This is not a premiere. This is not a recording. We are here live and we welcome you. We hope that you will enjoy our time together tonight and we're excited to spend some time with you. I am Pastor Steve. If you've never been with us before, we welcome you especially and you can find out about us at our website, newarkupc.info, and I'll talk to you about more of that information towards the end of the broadcast. But for now, I'd like to begin with a prayer. This has been quite a week and uh, in our nation, and uh, I'm not sure how each of our individual lives have been. Our Newark family, maybe this has been a good week for you. Maybe this has been a challenging week. Uh, this completes the first full week of the new year, 2021. And really, 2021 doesn't yet feel much different than 2020. And so we're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of much political unrest. We're in the midst of transition of power within our nation, within the United States of America. To those of you around the world that are joining the broadcast, please pray for us. And so there's a lot going on, both in our own individual lives, within our church family's life, and then also within the life of our nation, the United States of America. And so I think prayer is in order tonight. And so if you would join with me right now, I'd like to pray a blessing over us at the outset of this week, as we start this new week, start into the second week, full week of, of 2021, that God would be with us, that he would help us. And so join together with me, if you would, in your living rooms or on your phone, your iPad, your computer, your TV screen, wherever you're watching us, Join with us right now and let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you are King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And God, I pray that you, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, of the universe, that you would bring peace to this world. God, we understand that there are times that unrest comes from you, but let it be for your purposes. And God, let us, your children, in the midst of this, have a peace that passeth all understanding. God, bring wisdom bring knowledge, bring confidence. Allow us, Lord, to walk within your peace and within your provision. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help our nation in particular. God, allow, Lord Jesus, that things would be done according to your will. And God, help us to be aligned with your will. Help us to be the church. Help our light to shine as a candle that's set on a candlestick. Help us not to hide. Help us, Lord, to be wise. Help us, Lord, to walk in your peace. And God, I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we share your word, that you would, by your spirit, lead and guide us into your truth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And even though I can't hear you, can the church say amen? All right, tonight uh, I am going to probably do a little bit more of teaching uh, than preaching. Um, if you missed our Wednesday night broadcast, I did a little bit of preaching there. And uh, I would say to our Newark family and to anyone else who's watching, if you want to, uh, if I would ask you that you would pay attention to, if you have not watched the Wednesday night broadcast, go back on our YouTube channel or on our Facebook page and watch the Wednesday night and address uh, to the Christians uh, of America. I really, really shared with you my heart about what the church is really about. And so I uh, I'm not saying I can't preach every time I come on broadcast, but tonight I really feel to spend a little bit of different tone and uh, and actually do a little bit of teaching here. Now, that doesn't mean when I teach that I don't occasionally, as we like to joke around, treach, meaning put a little preaching with the teaching. And uh, so I will 
I will allow you to understand that I might get all worked up and I might get going. But my plan is, is to bring you a thought here tonight uh, that is more on the side of teaching, more on the side of information. And for those of you in Newark, I need you to know up front that not everything I say to you tonight is brand spanking new, but don't tune out. Don't assume that I don't have some additional items. Uh, they say that you have to repeat something seven times before people actually get a hold of it. Um, and I don't know if that's true of big concepts. And so tonight, I want to address something that we have been dealing with, that we will continue to address. But at the outset of this new year, um, I want to bring to you a thought and bring to you some insight that is important for this year. You may remember that I spoke to you at the end of December about that 2020 was a year of the unexpected. We didn't plan for any of what happened. And suddenly here we are, we're in the midst of a pandemic and all that that brought with it. And I told you that you needed to plan for 2021 to be the year of expected change. If 2020 was unexpected change, you need to plan for some expected change. And so I want to kind of address that a little bit tonight and, and to dive into it. And so to do so, I'm going to draw your attention. If you have your Bibles, if you want to go there, if not, you can just listen. Um, Exodus chapter 18, um, Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt and they have come across the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert. And um, we're told that in Exodus chapter 18, verse 1, that Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to Jethro, who had taken them in. So during some of this journey out of Egypt and the Exodus, as we know it, uh, Moses had sent his wife and his two sons to be with, with their, uh, her father and their grandfather. And so verse number six of chapter 18 tells us that Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. And so it's going to be a family visit. Jethro, his father-in-law is coming to see him. They have crossed the Red Sea. They've exited out of Egypt. And now they are moving through the Sinai Peninsula. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. They asked about each other's welfare and then went into Moses' tent. Moses told his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel as he rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, for sake of time tonight, because I don't want to go extremely long, uh, I'm going to drop down to verse number 13. So after this visit uh, and some back and forth, the next day, you know, father-in-law comes one day. The next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. The people waited before him from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you? from morning till evening. Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I'm the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees, and I give them instructions. So three things, settling disputes, giving them God's instructions, and God's decrees. Now notice what Jethro says. Jethro says to Moses, this is not good. 
Now, I want you to pause for a minute. What's not good? It's bad that Moses is settling disputes. It's bad that Moses is communicating God's decrees. It's bad that God is, excuse me, Moses is giving God's instructions to the people. No, what Moses is doing is not the problem. How he's doing it is the problem. Jethro goes on. He says, you're going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy for you to handle all by yourself. So I want everybody to catch that right there. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now, those of you that have been around Newark, uh, you may remember a while back, I talked to you about a sociological uh, number. Sociology is the study of how people in society relate to one another called Dunbar's number. Uh, how many of you remember Dunbar's number? If you do, uh, type in the chat and tell me what the number is. I'm not going to tell you it right away. I want to see how many of you remember what Dunbar's number is. Now, Dunbar's number is not a fixed uh, scientifically proven. It's more of kind of a theory, an idea, a general sense that, that this guy named Dunbar proposed. And the way he described it is actually not the way we would describe it, but I'm going to give you the quote from him and then we can adapt it. Basically, he said, the number of people you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them at a bar. Now, the bar part, we're not, we're not espousing that you start going to bars and drinking and so forth. So let's, let's adapt it. The number of people that you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited if you ran into them at Steak and Shake. Or the number of people that you would not feel embarrassed about plopping down in the booth if you came walking through McDonald's and you saw them and you'd share a Coke with them. The reason I say Coke is I don't think Pepsi's at McDonald's. But anyway. So it's the number of people that you have such a social connect with that you have no problem stopping whatever you're doing, stopping whatever they're doing, and spending time together. That's that kind of relationship. In fact, it would feel odd for you not to stop what you were doing, and it would feel odd for you not to stop them from what they were doing to spend some time together. All right, so I, hopefully you've been chatting. I cannot multitask. I don't have a host on with me, so I can't look at your chats to see if anybody's right, but I'm hoping you're putting in the number. What did you think it was? What's the number? All right, uh, I'm going to give you about 25 seconds more while I stand here, sit here and kind of look at the screen for a minute for you to go ahead and put that in. So let me let me see whether any of you were paying attention before. All right, what was Dunbar's number? All right, are we ready? Dunbar's number was 150, 150 people. And sociologists have taken this and have continued to move the number up slightly. They have not really crested above 200. And some have argued it needs to come down some. It's actually headed more towards 100. All right. So I want you to remember this number, Dunbar's number, the number of people that you can be in a sociologically a societal relationship with that is of such closeness that if you ran into them at McDonald's, you would stop and sit down and chat with them. You might be getting a hamburger and you'd stop and join them and eat your hamburger together. And in fact, to go across McDonald's and sit in a booth somewhere else would seem rather odd. Let me give you a concrete example of this. So if I'm in McDonald's and I happen to see Leela, uh, our executive pastor, sitting in the booth there, her and Art are sitting in a booth and they're eating a, eating a hamburger. I can promise you, 
they would expect me to come plop over next to them. And they, I would expect to be able to freely go over and plop right down in the booth and sit there and chat with them. All right. That's the kind of closeness or relationship. If I saw my children, I would expect to go and, hey, what are you guys doing here? You know, as they grow and they they move out of the house and hopefully we're still living in proximity to one another, I would go and I would sit in a booth with them. I would, I would interact with them. If I saw my parents or my in-laws, let's extend it out. Any of the members of the pastoral team, with the exception of a rush, I might try to sneak out. No, I'm kidding. I'd even go sit with a rush. All right. So I would, anybody that I would be willing to, and many of you within the church, if I saw you in McDonald's, I would go and sit down with you. I'd say, hey, what's going on? Now, I didn't say I'd spend an hour with you, uh, but we might. We might get into a great conversation. So who is the number of people that that level of relationship you can have with? So we're working with this theoretical of 150. Now, I'm going to shift gears real quick. All right. I haven't left Jethro's problem. I haven't left the story of Moses. I'm just giving us a little bit of application. So let's talk about the church in America. Now, this is not applicable to other places. This is data that's based on research here in America, and it's somewhat dated. It's it's a it can be approaching ten years old, but more recent data has not sizably moved these numbers. All right, so there was a, there's here's how I want you to think about it. Imagine an extremely long street. Okay, it's miles and miles and miles long, and on the left side of that street is church after church after church. They're sitting right next to each other, so just church after church after church for miles on end. All right. And so you start at one end. And so imagine the first church, you stop by that church and you look in its doors and inside of the church there, there's five people worshiping together. All right. And you walk a few more church doors up and you look in and there's eight people sitting there and you walk a few more doors up and you look inside of that church and there's 10 people sitting there. All right. And so you just keep walking up the street. Now, imagine that you walk up the street until you're at the halfway point of all the churches in America. 50% of the churches are behind you, and 50% of the churches are in front of you, okay? You can find this in multiple places on the internet. This is not, this is research that's been done, and you can go and check it out. There's not a single source for it. Um, the Barna Group is a, is a, is a great uh, resource for that, that I will reference, uh, church data and information like that, but there's multiples. So you're at the halfway mark. 50% of the churches are behind you. 50% are in front of you. Now, those of you that know mathematics, which I'm not real good. I had to kind of polish up my mathematics on this. That point is called the mean. It means half of the data set, the numbers, are below and half are above. Now, that's to be distinguished from average. Average is taking all the numbers, add them all together, and divide by the total number of whatever it is that you're counting. And then that's where you get the average. And the average is not always in the middle because you can have large numbers uh, that skew the numbers up or you can have small numbers that skew the numbers down. The mean is the guy in the middle. You've walked, 50% of the churches are behind you, 50% are ahead of you. Guess how many people you're gonna see when you look inside of that church? All right, I want you guys to comment. How many of you think is inside of that church? You got 50% behind you. You got 50% in front of you. How many are inside of that church? Now, again, this is not based in Australia. Hopefully our Australian friends are on and great, great to see you if you are. Uh, this is not New Zealand. This is not Fiji. This is not the United Kingdom. This is not Europe. This is not Africa. This is 
the United States of America, if you look inside that church where half are below, you've already walked past them, half are above, they're still ahead. How many are in there? All right, you ready for the answer? The answer is, and again, this number can fluctuate just a little bit, but it's roughly, it's within 10 people of this number. The mean church size, that church, when you look at it and you look inside, is 75 people. That means 50% of all churches in the United States of America are 75 people or less. 75 people. Now, suppose you continue to walk up the street and you keep walking, you keep walking, you keep walking, you walk a long time. In fact, you walk past 90% of the churches. So now you're not at the 50% mark, you're at the 90% mark. 10% of the churches are still left to go, but you've made the long walk and you've gone past 90% of the churches. When you look inside that church, you will find that that church has 350 people in it. So that means 90% of all the churches in North America are 350 or less members, okay? Now, here's the startling thing. When you're standing there, you've stopped looking inside that church that has 350 and you're looking at the remaining 10%. You've only got 10% of churches left to go, but you have 50% of the church attenders left to go. In other words, 50% of all church attenders go to only 10% of the churches. And this is why the average church size, as opposed to the mean, is actually 184. Because those really large churches, 350 greater, that have 50% all attending them, have skewed the numbers up to an average church size of 184. So 50% of all church attendees go to a church that is larger than 350. But at the 50% mark, 75 people or less are the size of the church. And at the 90% mark, 350 or less is the size of 90% of the churches. Now, why am I talking about Dunbar's number? Why am I talking about church size? Here's why. These are not just choices people are making. In other words, I like a small church. I like a medium church. I like a large church. It isn't. There's some of that. But there's also something else. And it's called the structure and the leadership of the church. When you start a church, by definition, that church is pastor-centric. Unless you somehow gotten special funding or gotten some crazy people that are willing to move with you, whenever a church is started, it usually is one person or one couple who moves into a town and begins to plant a church, to grow a church. And it starts small and everything depends on that person or that couple. In fact, probably the largest contributor to the church is that person. 
because the people who first come are not bought into that church. They don't necessarily believe in the vision of that church. They're not even sure they believe the doctrine of that church. And so they might give a dollar or two, or they might give a 20 in the offering, but they're not yet tithing. They're not yet giving in offerings, missions, etc. And so that church is new. It is growing. And guess who sets up? It's going to be that pastor. And guess who tears down? It's going to be that pastor. And guess who makes all the decisions? It's going to be that pastor. And that is what I have spoken to you all about as a pastor-centric church. And when I talk about a pastor-centric church, I need you to understand something, that when you're starting a church, I don't have another option for how to do that. Now, if we hit a boatload of money, somebody decides to start churches and dedicate, I don't know, a few billion dollars to it, maybe a team of people could be sent in to start a church. And some have tried to do that, but economically, that's the challenge. How do you carry that out? So most churches don't start that way. So I need you to understand that I'm not here critiquing the starting of a new church. I'm not here critiquing those churches that are still growing or are at a particular point where maybe there's 10 or there's 15 or there's 50 even people that are there. And there is this central role to the pastor. But here's the challenge. At a certain point, if the church continues to insist, either the pastor in his or her leadership or the church members themselves in their comfort zone, if they continue to insist on a pastor-centric model, it will limit and ultimately kill the church. Here's why. I want to give you a couple. It's not an exhaustive list, but I want to give you a couple of observations. Number one, a pastor-centric church has limitations. It's powerful for starting a church, but it has limitations. The first limitation is it undermines Jesus' command for all to make disciples of all. If a pastor-centric church stays a pastor-centric church and does not grow disciples who understand that they, along with the pastor, are responsible to make disciples, you will end up with whatever number of people are sitting behind that door on the left when you turn off the street with all the churches. You will find that many people sitting in the pews all looking at the pastor saying, when are you going to make another disciple? You made us disciples? Keep making disciples. But Jesus' commands are crystal clear. Everybody's supposed to make disciples. All of us are commanded to go into all the world and preach and teach the gospel. All of us are to make disciples. And so the pastor-centric model begins slowly over time to erode that understanding. People come to church and are comfortable not making disciples. The pressures of making disciples, the desire for souls to be saved, become something that only the pastor feels. That's a weakness of the pastor-centric model. Second problem is, is that it limits the growth of the church. A pastor-centric model, the very thing that allows a church to be planted and to grow, the security, the strength, the commitment of that pastor, now becomes the very bands that constrains its growth. It's safe to say, based upon Dunbar's number and based upon the typical size of a church, 75 at the halfway mark, 50% of churches are 75 or less, that it's safe to say that a pastor can only effectively pastor 75 to 150 people before that pastor-centric church structure begins to limit the opportunities to make more disciples. Why? Here's why. 
Because somewhere in that mark of 75 to 150, the needs of the disciples begins to render the church infertile. It can't produce more disciples because the only person making disciples is the pastor who is now consumed with the needs of the already made disciples. And by the way, the needs of the already made disciples are part of the job of that pastor. But if only the pastor is making disciples, and if only the pastor is caring for the disciples being made, there's a limit. In fact, my wife made the comment to me as I've talked to her over the years about this. She says, that Dunbar number has to go down because included in that number is that pastor has a wife or a husband. That pastor may have children. That pastor has fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and family members that are all part of the energy that a day-to-day life that person has to give. In fact, sometimes I think my parents get really upset with me now that they're retired because life's real simple because there's times I don't call them as often as they probably want to. You know why? Because the cares of the church pull. It's not that I don't love my parents. It's the inordinate amount of care for others. So as soon as you add someone to that circle, it pushes somebody else out. You're limited to how much emotional and physical and mental and spiritual strength you can dish out. So again, the limit of the pastor-centric is model is that it limits the growth of the church. It'll help to start one, but then you're going to hit a point where it becomes the limits. The, second, the third thing that I'd like to point out to you to consider tonight is that if it is a pastor-centric modeled church, at a certain point, the growth will grow to a place where it neglects the health, both the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual health of the pastor. If you worked full-time as a pastor, how many people could you mentally and emotionally and physically and spiritually be available to 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Whenever the crisis hit, the divorce, the car crash, the death of a child, marriage trouble, how many people? How many counseling sessions would you be able to sit down with and expend your emotions in these crisis times? Even how many joyous occasions could you attend? How many cakes could you eat? How many cookies could you have? How many, think of good and bad, all that comes with being there for people. How many could you give yourself to? I don't have an exact number, but I'm submitting to you tonight, somewhere in that 75 to 150 range, one couple, one person is going to run out of steam. And if you keep pushing, you're going to break something, physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. Now, let me press on. It also creates a hierarchy. And what I mean by that, here's what's interesting, is it creates a hierarchy as opposed to a structure in which members of the body that might should be growing into different roles within the body are set aside because high performance is preferred over the faithful. 
Now, Dad, I'm sorry right now. Those of you that don't know Newark, Newark was founded by my father. So I'm going to take a little bit of family prerogative here and speak a little bit more plainly than if the founder were somebody else. But let me tell you something. The founder of Newark routinely, in fact, with a little bit of pride, I'm not sure it was supposed to be, but a little bit of pride would say, I had the stamina, I had the ability to work 90 to 100 hours a week. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care if you have the stamina to do that or not. That's not healthy. God didn't build us to work that way. We didn't work 90 to 100 hours in the garden. And now we're working with a broken body in a broken world with broken spiritual relationships with God. My dad did have that stamina. And oh, by the way, I don't know if I have his stamina, but I have over the years learned that I can work really hard and really long. But therein lies the problem. Between the first two pastors, Newark has grown accustomed in its current size and its structure to requiring a, yes, I'm going to use it, a workaholic pastor. You expect that. Now, you, you didn't draw it into the job description. In fact, it's our own fault because we love the gospel, we love the kingdom, and we want it to advance. But it means that Newark is used to the pastor doing a whole lot. Now, I want to kind of turn you back to what Jethro said to Moses. Remember what he said? He said, this is not good. <laughs> was he saying it was bad for people to be saved, or was it bad for people to hear the gospel, or is it bad for the finances to be run well, or is it bad that the buildings get built? No. He said, this is not good, not because of what you are doing, Moses, but how you are doing it. And so today, I want to say very clearly, we haven't done anything bad, but if we insist on staying at a pastor-centric model, see, Brother Steve, you told us this already. We're not at a pastor-centric model. We have a pastoral team. Really? Okay. I'm going to throw somebody under the bus. You ready? Here goes the bomb, or I'm going to kick the pail, as they say. Then why, when you call the church office, do you insist on having a particular pastor return your phone call? Ah, so there we are. Even if you've moved off of me and moved to another pastor, if you insist on a particular pastor, guess what? You're still in the throes of the old system, of the old model of pastor-centric. I'm not going to call my small group. I'm not going to have my small group minister to me. I'm not going to allow ministry leaders to care for me. I've got to have a pastor. And by the way, new saints, I understand that. There are folks that will insist that I must pray for them. I get it. But some of you, many of you, are more mature than that. But it's an old model. Now, I want us to look at what Jethro proposed. In fact, what I'm calling tonight the Jethro model. Here's what he says to Moses. He says, listen to me, and let me give you a word of advice. And may God be with you. This is verse 19. He says, you should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to him. Teach them God's decrees and give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, groups of 100, groups of 50, and groups of 10. 
They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures and all these people will go home in peace. So Jethro's structure is tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. Now, if I took that and applied that loosely to our scenario, groups of 10 sound an awful lot like, let me wait, uh, somebody tell me, what does it sound like? Like like on your on the group chat, what does that sound like? A group of 10, I'm really searching right now. I know I'm being a little sarcastic, but what does that sound like? I don't know, if, does Newark have anything that sounds like, like groups of 10? I'm trying to think, what would they be called if we did? Um, oh, I thought of it. Did any of you? Small groups. Small groups are members caring for members. There's Moses's, Jethro's, excuse me, first suggestion to Moses. Then he says, group some of them together so that you've got people who are responsible for the organization and the structure and the care for groups of 50. So what's a group of 50? Well, it's five small groups, members caring for members, that's then being organized and structured and cared for by one person. And by the way, notice the number is still down underneath of that 75 number. Then he says groups of 100. Well, what's that? That's one person overseeing two other people who are themselves caring for each a group of 50. And so together, these three people are organizing, structuring, and caring for 100 people. Well, what's a group of 1,000? Well, it's one person along with 10 others who each of them have two people working maybe a team of about 30 that are organizing, structuring, and caring for a thousand. If you divide all that up, any one person is still only caring for directly 30 to 50 people. 30 to 50 people. Do you know what 30 to 50 people tells me? There's room for growth. Not only is there boundary, not only is it able to be done, but there's room for more to be added. The New Testament structure, what does it have to say about this? Steve, you're going back to Jethro. What does the New Testament structure have to say? Well, you've all heard this before, but pastor is only used once in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And that role of pastor, along with apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, is to equip the church to do God's work. All the other occasions for the role of the pastor is actually not the term pastor, but the word elder. And here's what's interesting. It's never found in the singular. It's always in the plural. Because within the church structure of the New Testament church, the elders were always a team. There wasn't one. There were multiples. Great example of this that I've cited many times is Acts chapter 13. You can go and read that first three verses. And from that team were separated Barnabas and Paul, also a team to go and start the missions work. We even see the early Christian church having to adapt to grow the team. The apostles are all feeding the widows and it doesn't work in Acts chapter six. And they have to get more team members. 
So as I'm drawing to a close tonight, what does this mean? Why am I drawing your attention to this? Why am I talking about Jethro's model? Why am I talking about Dunbar's number? Why am I talking about the mean size or even the average size of the church? Why am I talking about the limitations of a pastor-centric model? Here's why. Here's what it means. Number one, if a church continues to make disciples, if a church is to continue to make disciples, the pastor-centric model must transition to a team model. That's number one. It has to transition. Number two, the church members must, as they mature, become active and primary in caring for one another. Active and primary. The members are the first ones to care for the needs of other members. Number three, the church members must also become active and primary in making disciples themselves. This is what Ephesians is talking about, that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and pastors and teachers equip the church to do God's work. There must be ministry leaders then who lead, and leading in the kingdom means serving through organizing and structuring these church members. And there must then be pastors also who not only pastor the saints, if you will, the members, but there must also be pastors who only pastor other pastors and other ministry leaders. The church must be composed of groups of members caring for one another while being organized by ministry leaders. And these ministry leaders are caring for their teams of people even as they organize them. And teams of pastors are then caring for and organizing each other and the ministry leaders. And all of this must be developed and embraced. Because if a church is to continue growing past 150, the pastor-centric model must transition to a team model. You want to know why Newark's where it's at right now? Because we've got to complete this transition. Because we don't yet have the capacity to grow. We grow, but we don't grow. We have to wait for somebody to die. We have to wait for somebody to stop coming to church. We do not have the capacity to grow. You see, the team model means that the whole body is structured so as to help one another carry the load. And that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 4 says. And I want to close by reading you the full three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and the complete standard of Christ. So in the midst of COVID, as we move forward, 
And as the vaccinations begin to take effect and as we begin to come out of it, understand it will have been many months before we have walked onto a physical campus and many of our structures will not have been in operation because we've not done things the way that we would if we were able to be on our physical campus. So you should expect us in this season to have been working and preparing to continue and intensify the transition from pastor-centric to team model. And a team model, not just of pastors, but the whole body fitly joined together as a unified team, structured and organized so as to not have any one member of the body out of place and overwhelmed. Jethro's words were words of admiration. Look at all that God has done through and with you, Moses. But he then said, this is not good how you're doing it. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear the people out. And so I challenge you tonight that you continue to consider what is my role within this? What is my place within the body? Where can I participate and contribute? What do I need to shift in my own lifestyle that gives space that I can make disciples, that I am available to lead, that I am available to contribute, that I am able to be a part of this? Where can I understand that maybe I need to turn to a member to help me as opposed to my default? I'll just call a pastor. Are pastors there for you? Absolutely. Do they need to be there in all of the things? I don't know. That's something that I want us to pray about. And over this next year, let's see whether God can't lead and guide us to create some capacity for more souls to hear the gospel and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to close in prayer just as I opened, and I'd ask you to join me. Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, that the words that I shared tonight the scripture that I shared, the concepts that I shared, that you, by your spirit, would bring them home to us, that you would cause them to make, to make sense to us, to allow us to understand what the spirit is saying to the church. And God, I pray, Lord, that in 2021, you continue to keep us safe, that you lead and you guide us, and you help us, Lord, to embrace, uh, we don't like it, but to embrace and expect the change that you're bringing to us because you are good and you know how to make all things good. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we always say, anytime that you join us, please go over to our website. If you have not been with us before, join us on our website, newarkubc.info. There you can find out all kinds of information about our church, uh, who we are, our small groups, how to join, prayer requests. You can partner with us in giving. You can find information about our kids' programs as well. We're really excited about those. And if you haven't had your kids involved with those, we would love for you to check that out. And so I am so excited and pleased that you've joined us tonight. And I thank you for being a part of us. And I just look forward to what God's going to do this week, what's going to transpire, and everything that God is going to do through us. God bless you. And we love you much. Have a great night, everybody. And God bless.